you pray with me again? Father, we are grateful that you've brought us here this morning. We're grateful for your word, and we, we pray that this morning as we open your word and, and meditate on it, that you would reorient us to the true hope that we have. Father, we pray that you would uh, shake us free from the, the simple, trivial hopes that this world offers and firmly plant us in the hope of what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this week, my wife has been telling me that I'm a giant Scrooge all week long. Uh, she's called me a bummer. She's called me Debbie Downer at least a dozen times. And I thought she was wrong until this morning. Uh, this morning as I was sitting in my office working through and just thinking about my sermon again, uh, the introduction just kind of stuck with me. I'm like, that is a really depressing introduction, especially for the first Sunday of Advent season. And now I'm not going to change it, uh, but I'm telling you that so now you can sympathize with what Lynn's had to put up with all week long, and so that you'll know once we get through the introduction, it's all uphill from there. Or I guess it's all, it's all up from there. How about that? Okay, so you ready? The, the depressing story. December 17th, 1927. Ah, oh, sounds like it's going to be a Christmas story. It's not. Uh, a U.S. submarine, SS-109, was unintentionally rammed by a Coast Guard ship just off the coast of Maine. Uh, the collision ripped two giant holes in the submarine, and it began to sink, trapping the 38 men in what would become their grave. A hundred and two feet below the surface of the water. Uh, lots of attempts were made to, to rescue these men, but the attempts were hindered by high winds, high seas, and freezing cold temperatures. At one point, a, a deep sea diver who was doing his best to release the men from the, the submarine heard tapping uh, on the ship. And he realized that the tapping was actually a Morse code message being repeated over and over and over again. It was a question, is there any hope? That question has burned in the hearts of men and women ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve plunged the world into sin and rebellion. Is there any hope? Someone has once said that you can live for 40 days without food for eight days without water, for four minutes without air, but not even for a few seconds without hope. See, that is a Debbie Downer kind of an introduction, isn't it? But it goes up. Because God hasn't left us without hope. That's what this first Sunday of Advent celebrates. That's what this passage that was read in the beginning of the service from the book of Isaiah is all about. It's about hope about the hope that God offers in His Son, Jesus Christ. When we think of the prophets, probably a lot of times we think of, of judgment and wrath and, and things like that. And the prophets had a lot to say about that. In fact, the prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about judgment coming. That's the immediate context surrounding what we just read a few minutes ago. But Isaiah points us beyond the judgment to hope, to the hope that can be found in a coming king and in his glorious kingdom. 
the, the Old Testament background of this passage, I think, is actually important to understand the full weight of what the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming. At this point in Israel's history, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, two separate kingdoms. Both actually pretty rebellious, pretty sinful, have wandered away from God. Uh, the northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. At this point, the northern kingdom has made a treaty, has made an alliance with a foreign nation called Syria. And Israel and Syria together are coming to wage war on the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah has a king named Ahaz. Ahaz is not a good guy. Ahaz is a wicked king. So wicked, he's actually sacrificed one of his sons on an altar as a burnt sacrifice. He's walked away from God. He's imitating the foreign nations around him. And he sees Syria and Israel coming to wage war against him. And he thinks to himself, I need me an ally. So he goes out and he makes an alliance with Assyria. Not to be confused with Syria. This is Assyria. And Assyria is the biggest boy on the block. Uh, they're the, the mighty nation in the region. So politically, this looks like a good plan to gel this alliance. Ahaz has actually robbed all the silver out of the Lord's house and sent it to the king of Assyria to kind of cement this agreement. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz. And he says, this, th this was a big mistake. You looked to Assyria. You put your hope and trust in Assyria. And you should have trust in me. Isaiah, in the chapters immediately preceding what we just read, plays out for King Ahaz what this is going to look like. He says the Assyrian army, they're going to come in like a flood. They're going to spill over their banks. They're not just going to help you conquer Israel. They're going to spill out and flood your land too. And they're going to come right to the neck, right to Jerusalem and choke it off. Then he says, Assyria is like an axe in my hand. They're going to be the instruments of judgment that I use to lay low Israel. He also talks about how he is eventually going to judge his instruments of judgment. But when all of this calamity and all this judgment is over, what's going to be left is just a tiny remnant of God's people. He says, it's like Israel's a forest. It's been laid low, and the only thing that stands are a few trees that even a child could count. But through all of that, Isaiah points and he says, even despite this, look there. There you can see hope. And it's sprouting from the stump of Jesse. Look out at Israel. It's like a forest laid bare. You see that stump, that stump of Jesse, which is the royal line. There's a sprout coming up. It's a new king. A king unlike all the other kings you've seen before and there's your hope look there this is your hope this is your salvation 
Isaiah tells the people where to look. Look to the stump of Jesse. Look to that new king that's going to spring up from that stump. There's your hope. And then he goes on and he tells you what that king is going to look like and what his reign will entail. Look again at the passage. Isaiah 11, chapter 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Isaiah says he will be full of the Spirit. He will be guided by the Spirit of the Lord and wisdom and understanding and knowledge. In other words, his wisdom will surpass human wisdom. King Ahaz looked and he thought, a treaty with Assyria, an alliance with them, that looks wise. And it did. In human ways of wisdom. But he did it without any regard for what that would do to the nation spiritually. This new king, he'll be led by the Spirit and in godly wisdom. And this new king that comes from the stump of Jesse will fear the Lord. He won't fear foreign nations and foreign armies. He will fear the Lord and render righteous judgments and punish the wicked. In other words, Isaiah is saying, everything that King Ahaz isn't, this new king will be righteous, just, holy. He'll fear the Lord and be full of the Spirit. But he goes on to describe what his reign will be. It will be a reign of, of peace. He says the wolf will live with the lamb. I don't hear many wolves out where I live, but I hear coyotes. Coyotes virtually every night. And I know when I hear the coyotes, if I'm a rabbit, I'm not a rabbit, but if I was a rabbit, I'd run and take cover. Because coyotes and rabbits don't do well together. Wolves and lambs don't do well together. But under the reign of this new king, the wolf will lay down with the lion. And children will play next to the cobra's den without any fear. I moved to Florida when I was five years old and lived there for seven years. And around the school that I went to, there was a playground in, in a wooded area. And we used to, on our recesses, go into the wooded area and try and find snakes. Uh, you know, little garter snakes or grass snakes, things like that. I always felt like, didn't know if I should quite trust my friends you know, were they playing a trick on the Yankee who didn't know much about snakes and I was really picking up a, a dangerous snake? Or... But it doesn't matter in the New Kingdom. You can play with a cobra. You look, Mommy, look, I got a cobra. Doesn't matter. Uh, this is beyond the peace that can be bought from another nation. This is beyond the peace of Rome. This is beyond any treaty kind of peace. This is cosmic peace, where everything returns to the shalom, the peace as God intended, and goes beyond even the peace of Eden. 
And he says, the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God will cover the earth as waters. And nations will come to Israel, will flood into Israel to inquire about their God. That this passage points us ahead to Christ the King and His eternal kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. Points us beyond any earthly king or kingdom to the divine king and the kingdom of God. But what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, on one hand, nothing. I mean, it doesn't say anything about a virgin birth, being born in a manger, being born in Bethlehem. It doesn't say anything about angels or shepherds or wise men and their gifts. This is about the end. This is about the last age, about the eternal kingdom in Christ's reign. So in one sense, this has nothing to do with Christmas. But in another sense, it has everything to do. Christmas. Uh, the first Christmas. Uh, we're pointed ahead to the glorious kingdom. Uh, we're pointed ahead to the hope of Christ in His reign by being pointed back to the birth of Christ. Advent season points us ahead to the return of Christ in His kingdom by pointing us back to the birth of Christ and the inauguration of this kingdom. The hope of the future breaks into the present on Christmas. Uh, J.R. Tolkien coined this great word, eucatastrophe. Uh, we know the word catastrophe. It's kind of a sudden, climactic, uh, big event. And he attached the word "u" E-U, to the front of that, which means good. He used that to describe sudden turns in a story, sudden dramatic changes in a story uh, that bring salvation to the hero. And he said, the incarnation is the great eucatastrophe of human history. It's, it's unexpected. This salvation comes from the, the root, the stump of Jesse. It's unexpected. It's, you, you wouldn't look at it and think, that's glorious. But it changes everything. It brings salvation not only to human history, but to all of creation. And Advent season points us ahead to that great hope by pointing us back to the manger and the first coming of Jesus Christ. We live in light of that solid, secure hope. We live with that anchor that Christ, because He has come once, He will return again and establish His kingdom and fulfill all the promises He's made. And that gives us a huge opportunity to show the world 
what true hope looks like. I, I think that opportunity is greater now than, than it has been for generations because hope is so hard to find in today's world. I was just reading an article this week and it said that young generations, those who were in their 20s, 30s, and even early 40s, they're the first generation since the Great Depression who don't have the hope of a better life than their parents. They won't be more prosperous than their parents. That's kind of depressing. If you look at and read much fiction, one of the most popular genres of fiction, especially with young people, is the genre called dystopia. Like utopia, but the opposite. You think of movies like, or in books series, like The Hunger Games, and Ender's Games, and The Divergent Series. I know all those because my kids read them. They paint a picture of a bleak, bleak future. A world with, with little or no hope. And if you don't have hope, what do you do? Well, many people numb themselves. Uh, they don't have hope and they don't want to deal with the pain of no hope, so they numb themselves with, with medications or, or alcohol. Or they numb themselves with entertainment. We entertain ourselves to death. Our culture entertains itself to death with endless hours of television and, and video game consumption. Now, I'm all about TV and, and video. I'm good at video games. But when the world uses that to numb itself to the hopelessness, it's a problem. If you don't have hope, you can numb yourself or you can deceive yourself with false hopes. And our world is good at offering all kinds of false hopes, would-be messiahs. Sometimes they come in the form of education or new social agendas or military advances, medical advances. But those are false hopes. The only solid, true hope is in what God is doing and has done and will do through Jesus. And anchoring ourselves to that hope gives us a great opportunity, again, to show the world what true hope looks like. The Apostle Peter told us in one of his letters, he said, be ready. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. In other words, he's saying, you're going to live differently because of that hope you have, because of that hope of eternity and of the kingdom and what it looks like. That's going to change how you live and people are going to inquire. They're going to ask, why do you live this way? Why do you look and act so different? When they ask, be ready to answer with gentleness. Well, in order for people to ask, they have to look at us and wonder, why? Why do they do that? Why are they different? So what is living in light of eternity? What is living in light of the promises of Isaiah 11 look like? As I sat this week and meditated on that, I, I came, with, came up with, with three things I think ought to be different in people who live in light of eternity. I think you can come up with more. 
But first, I think if we're living in light, anchored to that firm hope of eternity and of the eternal kingdom of God that is a kingdom of righteousness and justice where all the wrongs are set right and all the sacrifices for the gospel and for God and His kingdom are rewarded, if we're living in light of that, we'll wait patiently for justice. Now, we won't repay evil for evil. We won't repay slander for slander. Remember a time when my family and I were in Pennsylvania. And I think we were seriously wronged. Looking back, I have, you know, seven, eight, eight, nine years now separation from it. And and I still think we were wronged. Maybe not as deeply as I felt it at the time. But there was this real temptation to try and address the wrong myself. Uh, to slander in response to slander. To, I could have justified it and not used the word slander. I could have said, I'm just getting my side of the story out. Or, or I'm just trying to set the record straight. And I think daily we're faced with that kind of temptation. But when we live in light of the kingdom of God and this eternal righteous kingdom... We don't have to. We don't have to fight for our own rights and repay evil for evil. We can forgive and trust that Christ will set everything to straight. That He will restore what has been taken. That He will vindicate our cause. We don't have to. We don't have to avenge. We leave that to God. We can be patient in waiting for justice to be delivered. We can also patiently wait for gratification. Have you ever seen or read about the Stanford marshmallow experiment? It's kind of this great classic experiment in psychology from the 60s and 70s. What the researchers did is they had a kid, and they had the kid alone in a room, and they went into the room and put a marshmallow on the table. And they said, here's a marshmallow. You can eat it if you want to. But if you wait, I'm going to leave the room and go get another one. If I come back and that marshmallow is still there, I'll give you two marshmallows. So it was a study in delayed gratification. Could these kids wait and not eat the marshmallow and get a reward for not satisfying themselves immediately. Uh, it's interesting. They, they did follow-up studies on the kids. And those who were able to kind of delay the gratification and say, no, I'm not going to eat the marshmallow now. I'll wait and get two marshmallows in a few minutes. They actually did a lot better in life. They did better academically. They were more solid in their careers. Uh, they were more healthy in their lifestyles. And they said that that has something to do with self-discipline. It also has something to do with being able to look ahead and be farsighted and, and see the sacrifices now can win rewards later. You know, we live in a culture that wants immediate gratification. Even more so than the, the 60s and the 70s. We can blame it on microwaves, right? We want the food and we want it now. We demand instant gratification. 
Uh, but living in light of eternity, in light of this kingdom that Isaiah portrays, this kingdom of peace and prosperity, means we don't have to have it right now. We can delay. Oh, we have money, we have resources, we could use them to indulge our consumeristic whims. Or, we can use them to bless others. We can give sacrificially to others. We can use them to bless the kingdom of God, to help the kingdom of God advance, knowing that sacrifices now will be rewarded ten and even hundredfold in the kingdom. We can use the energy that we have to go out and serve self, to go out and have fun. Or we can use the energy to serve others. We can pursue sin and the pleasure that it brings. Or we can say, no. I'll not pursue pleasure through sin. I'll pursue joy. Eternal joy through righteousness. Living in light of the hope of Advent means we can wait patiently for justice. Wait patiently for gratification. And it will also make us a steady even keel kind of people. You know, kids are incredibly short-sighted, aren't they? At least my kids are. I hope my kids aren't that weird. Uh, But they can't see beyond the immediate. And so if they've been told no, they can't do something that they really want to do, it's the worst day ever. You know, if their friend has hurt their feelings, their friend's the worst friend ever. You know, it's just whatever's immediate, what's right in front of them, that's all they see. As mature adults, we can see past the immediate. And as mature believers, we ought to be able to see past the immediate, past the immediate decades, and into the eternal kingdom. Eternity. And that ought to give us a steadiness. Because our future, our hopes aren't tied to who's in office or what legislation gets passed or what the NASDAQ and the Dow do or successes or failures at work. Those things can go up, they can go down and we remain anchored, we remain tethered to a firm hope. The hope of eternity. The hope of Christ and His reign forever and ever. Those were the three things that I imagined. In my life, if I was to live more in light of the hope of Advent, the hope of this kingdom coming to fruition, and more, be more patient in waiting for justice, more patient in waiting for grat- uh, gratification, and I'd be steady. But what about you? Uh, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination This kingdom, what would it look like in your life to live in light of this kingdom? I'm asking you to use your imagination, not to imagine something that's unreal, but to imagine something that's very real, yet invisible. Very real, yet future and coming. I'm not sure what it is in your life this week or this year, Uh, that tempts you to feel hopeless? Is it a 
a, a job that you just dread but can't get out of. Or maybe it's a lack of a job. Is it a broken family dynamic? A marriage that's just, you're struggling through it. Is it economic straits? You just don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. You can't get out from under the debt. Is it sin? What in your life leaves you feeling hopeless? This Christmas season, let all of this stuff we do remind you to look ahead. Let this Advent season point you ahead to the true hope of Christ and His kingdom by reminding you that the kingdom has already dawned, that hope has already dawned in the birth of Jesus, who is Lord and King. There is a solid hope that we can anchor our lives to. And we have the privilege of living in light of this hope and sharing this hope this light with a world that so desperately needs it. Would you pray with me? Father, I I do pray that as each day, as each week goes on, that we would be more firmly attached to the true hope of your kingdom and the reign of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would shake us free from all the false hopes to which we cling. And that living in light of this hope, we would be a light to the world. That we'd reflect your love. That we'd reflect your grace and your mercy and your kingdom priorities. Father, we pray that as you you do this in us, we would bring you glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.